I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Orion Hindawi, co-founder of Tanium, a cybersecurity company. Tanium ensures internet safety for the U.S. government and Fortune 500 companies by spanning across entire networks and identifying intruders within 15 seconds of their entrance. Clients include Amazon, Target, Best Buy, Visa, and the Department of Defense. Orion started Tanium in 2007 with his father, David. Prior, father and son worked together on their other startup, a software company called Big Fix that was sold to IBM in 2010 for $400 million. Welcome. Thank you. How does Tanium work? What we realized when we were working on Big Fix was that everybody in our space was doing things the same way. Really, that design is called a hub and spoke in our in our model, but essentially you've got a central server and it's talking to every computer in the environment and it's trying to gather data. And what we realized was, having worked on that for 10 years, that we'd all reached the end of the rope. And the problem is, when you've got an attacker who's coming at you and they can get your data out in 15 minutes, knowing that that happened three days later just isn't that valuable. I went to our chief architect at the time and I asked her what would we need to do to make our system thousands of times faster. And she essentially told me that we'd have to throw everything away and start over. So that's what we did. Your system is a peer-to-peer system where you have all these computers next to each other talking to each other. And Mm -hmm. so there's sort of like this nervous system Mm -hmm. that then reports to the central brain or Mm -hmm. hub. Mm -hmm. Could you explain that further? We call it a ring topology. It's a very different design And in our environment, every client is talking to one ahead of them and one behind them. So they really only have two peers that they're talking to. That allows us to control it much more effectively so you can throttle it. You can make sure that nobody's being hit very aggressively uh, with traffic. It also allows us to secure it really effectively. You were talking before how the old system was broken, this hub-and-spoke mm-hmm. system. And I think of your competitors, your, the incumbents like McAfee and Symantec. Mm-hmm. They had these walls that try to prevent hackers from penetrating. And your model is, let's let these intruders in, and then let's tackle them. Can you talk to me about the difference there? Sure. I, I mean... In a perfect world, we wouldn't let anybody in. The problem is the prevention model that McAfee and Symantec and companies like that have promulgated historically was based on the idea that you could prevent an attack because you'd seen it before. Mm -hmm. And the problem in our industry today is that attackers have gotten smarter. And as a result of that, the whole prevention model kind of breaks down. What we've been able to do is create a system that gives you real-time views on change so that when an attacker does come in, before they're able to actually do damage, you often can see that they're in and change the environment so that it's impossible for them to cause that damage. And once they are in and within you know, 15 seconds you claim you're able to change the environment, what exactly are you doing? Mm-hmm. How are you changing the environment? So one of the things that a lot of people don't know is that if you look at the attacks that are succeeding, well over 99% of them are being allowed in because of vulnerabilities everybody knows about. So Microsoft releases these patches every month. A lot of people don't apply them. And so what we've seen is that with our tool, people can actually start doing all the things they knew they were supposed to do, but were really hard with old tools. So just enable all the things, the hygiene that they've known for a long time they were supposed to do. And as a result of that, it makes it a lot harder for attackers to get in. When they do get in, then you want to do things like quarantine computers, send a computer into a different part of the network, 
so that it's not able to talk to your customer database, as an example. And so you can actually control the behavior of the assets that you have that are compromised. Now, the problem has been historically that when you push the button as an IT operator, in old systems, it would take you days before that change actually hit the machine. And the attacker's already gone by then. Now, you talk about hygiene, and mm-hmm. I actually think of the human body. In a way, you are like the antibodies attacking the antigen that comes in, disembodying it. And, you know, hygiene, like we brush our teeth. And, you know, you as we as consumers of technology and at enterprise level or consumer level have to do these things that I know I should do and I don't. Hygiene is actually a really good analogy. And the human body is a really good analogy because if your brain had to centrally control every cell and tell it what to do, the whole system wouldn't work. So that distributed computing that we do in our body is exactly the same thing that you'll see in our system. Sometimes people don't even know that they that their devices are computers, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what are some of the less obvious devices that could be encroached upon? I mean, we sure. know, okay, PCs, ATMs, but what are some others? Computers are ATMs and heart rate monitors and CAT scanners and point-of-sale devices and retail shops and cameras and fulfillment centers and all kinds of even door locks that are controlled, you know, using automated systems really are running Linux and have vulnerabilities. Hmm. And if they're not patched, they actually are susceptible to attack. Now, heart rate monitors in hospitals, Mm -hmm. talk to me about what can go wrong if a hacker touches them. I mean, the heart rate monitor can either misreport or stop working. I think there are a lot of people who have a vested interest in causing damage. And especially given our geopolitical situation, I think we really need to consider the possibility that we will be attacked in more and more destructive ways. Who are these hackers? I think of people maybe like in their in their bedrooms in uh, mm-hmm. Bulgaria or Eastern Europe. Can you give us some profile of the people? Sure. And I, I mean, there are some Eastern European hackers who are amazing. I mean, and I think one of the reasons that you associate there is they've had active programs to train people for a long time. So you know, really, there there are three classes of hackers that we see. There's kind of the run-of-the-mill script kid, basically. Somebody who wants to, you know, just basically have fun or get known. Um, you've got the commercial hackers, so they tend to be criminal organizations. They tend to actually be going after customer data or something that they can sell, healthcare data. And then you've got nation-state level attackers. You mentioned before that you know, with your old company, you were approaching cybersecurity in an antiquated way. Mm-hmm. And then now this company is innovated. H- how do you know that you're always staying ahead of what sometimes is a failure of imagination? Mm-hmm. Like, What can people concoct? And so, you, you might not. No, the answer is we're constantly in a cat and mouse game. Mm-hmm. And so we need to spend enough time really understanding the market and bringing in experts into our company who can educate our engineers on the latest problems so that we can give our customers tools to address them. And it really is a never-ending cycle. I mean, we release a new module every quarter, every three months. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Orion Hindawi, co-founder of Tanium, an internet security company that helps protect corporations and governments from cyber attacks. Orion started the company with his father, David, in 2007. You knew this problem existed while you were working at Big Fix, which was your predecessor company mm-hmm. uh, who, that your father founded, and he recruited you to join him, and you, you left Berkeley and never finished college to your mom's chagrin. But Big Fix was sold to IBM. How come you didn't stay with the company through the sale? 
So I actually chose to leave three years before the sale. And the reason that I left, I think, is the same reason that they sold the company, which is that we'd reached the maximal point. We could really improve that technology. So why would IBM want to buy the company then? There were a lot and still are a lot of important customers who use Big Fix. And so, you know, the reality is they're not innovating substantially and haven't since they bought it. You know, as a technologist, it's really disappointing. From a business standpoint, I think they feel like they made a good decision. So you and your dad uh, left in frustration. And for, you know, basically five years, you kind of worked underground even before you had your first client. Can you talk to me about those days? David and I actually had some choices to make when we left Big Fix because we sold a lot of our stock as we left. And as a result of that, you know, we lived pretty simple lives. We didn't actually have to go back to work at all. And we both decided that we were going to take a little bit of time off. And I think both within literally weeks of leaving realized that we were super bored. You know, what we realized was we knew things that would allow us to build a system that was just better. What did those days look like when you Mm -hmm. were working on this? It was informal. We had a couple luxuries. So the first one was we knew we didn't have to get a product out the door and we hadn't taken any money from venture capitalists. So there was no drumbeat that was applied to us. And we also only hired people we'd already worked with. And we gave them the latitude to actually take the time necessary to build something that was built right from the ground up. And, you know, I'll make an analogy. If you look at a lot of products in our space, they look like, you know, it was originally a two-bedroom house, and then they kept on adding bedrooms until the point it's a seven-bedroom house, but the foundation is too small. And we knew that if we built it right from scratch, we'd be able to actually build something that would sustain the test of time. Hmm. And so we gave them five years, but more importantly, we actually worked with some of our old customers from Big Fix to beta test our product in their environment during that time. When we actually in 2012 went to market, We'd already deployed it on hundreds of thousands of computers. For free. Absolutely. And worked with those companies to figure out how we could make it work better. Again, I really appreciate the venture capitalists that we've brought in recently because I think they can really help us at this stage of the company. But the luxury of taking the time necessary to really build something we're proud of as craftsmen rather than as, you know, kind of a rush job, I think is what made Tanium. And you had a pivot moment in in 2014 where you did bring in your first institutional or venture capital. Mm -hmm. You raised money uh, primarily from Andreessen Horowitz. Mm -hmm. What was the catalyst for taking on a significant amount of capital so Mm -hmm. quickly? You know, really there were two things that we saw. Um, The first was that I'm looking at a market that is not going to continue the way that it is. And the reason that I say that is there are too many companies raising money at too high valuations that really are not producing anything that I can see. And I think that's going to change. I don't think that there's going to be an opportunity to raise money like we have, not just us, but everybody in our industry over the last couple of years. And we now have $300 million in the bank, and that gives me the cushion that I need regardless of what happens to the macroeconomic climate, regardless of what happens to this release or that release to ensure that I can actually do a great job for my customers. So that's one. The second reason was Andreessen Horowitz has a capability that I've never seen before, which is they have something called the Executive Briefing Center, where they bring in 1,800 customers a year, and they tend to be global 2,000 companies that are really great targets for Tanium, and they bring them in to show them what's new in Silicon Valley and really what they should be paying attention to. And if you look at the customers who've bought Tanium, 
more than 50% of them actually were touched in that executive briefing center. And this was even before you took capital from them. They they made introductions for you. That's right. Speaking of Andreessen Horowitz, um, I want to talk about your, your maybe it was your first meeting with them mm-hmm. where you showed them the software mm-hmm. and it was so fast that they assumed it was like a mock-up and they asked, well, well how long will it take to build for real? And you said, well, actually, it is live. What was that story? One of the problems in our industry is that people will show you a mock-up and pretend it's real. And often it's physically impossible to build what they're showing, and they just want to kind of bait people into believing it's real long enough that they can go and figure out something else to do. Tanium, we went to them and showed them a production hospital. And we just walked them through the problems that this hospital had and how they were solving it using Tanium. And so... Yes, they didn't believe it. And it was actually funny because I got all the way through the demo before they asked me how long it was going to take to build it. (laughs) And when I told them it was all real, they actually asked me to walk through a lot of it again because, you know, like (laughs) now that we actually know it's possible, we really want to see that in nuanced form. You showed them a hospital in California. Mm -hmm. What, What are examples of issues that that hospital was facing? Data leakage is one of the things that a lot of people worry about. For example, people using Dropbox or people using LogMeIn. You know, these are products that people think they should be able to use because they make their jobs easier. Maybe they can send something to Dropbox so that they can then use it from home or whatever it is. And if you're a hospital, that's a huge HIPAA violation, Mm -hmm. right? And so computers aren't built in some ways to allow you to manage this very effectively. And yet, as a hospital, if somebody leaks patient data, you have to disclose it. It can be a very expensive proposition. And so the first thing we showed them was, here's every way to get data out of this hospital, and here's what's happening right now. Here are all the people who are actually using Dropbox or LogMeIn or Box. Here are all the people who are sending data out and what data they're sending. Steven Sanofsky was one of the partners in that meeting. He was at Microsoft, and Mm -hmm. he led Microsoft Windows, and he's on your board now. Was that one of the stipulations of your relationship, that you would take their money and that you wanted Steven on your board? It's a very interesting question. So a lot of people in our position would have asked for the biggest name, and so Mark or Ben or somebody that – and what we realized was – Stephen actually had extremely deep domain expertise in things we didn't already know. So he really understands the operating system landscape and the partnership landscape. And so uh, we did request that we get Stephen. Titanium is an element. What is Tanium? What actually ended up happening was I went to a website to go and look up uh, domain names that were available and went through literally 420 pages of domain names before I found one that I wanted and bought it. And um, is, it a sp- is it a real word? Nope. I mean, it's basically a play on the word titanium. You know, I, I'll tell you this, the overthinking of names is really funny to me because, I mean, we sold a company called Big Fix for $400 million and it doesn't get any worse than that. So, <laughs> You have been in business with your father basically since you left college. Did you always have a sense that, yeah, my dad and I are going to work together? Or was it uh, more accidental than that? So I've had a close relationship with my father my whole life. I'm very, very close to him. I always have been. And I didn't know even when I started college that I wanted to go and work with my dad. What I saw, though, was that Big Fix was this nascent company, and it was really struggling to find a mission. And there was a need for a big shakeup. And I realized, A, I knew a lot about this problem, but B, uh, that I was getting really bored at school. Mm-hmm. And so it was fortuitous, actually. Working with my dad has been probably one of the biggest luxuries in my life. What is he like? 
He is the most honest, disciplined person I know. Where's your mom in all this? Uh, my mom is furious that I didn't graduate from college and uh, brings that up every day. Do you think that just to please her, I mean, you only have like physical education left and like one economics class. Why don't you just do it to please her and then move on? Well, that is a consideration. A birthday present. Yes. You know, when Tanium's done in 20 years and uh, we've wrapped that up, maybe I'll, I'll go back and get the degree. Your father is from Iraq. How old was he when he moved to Israel? So he was four years old. He actually had to move before his parents did because of the way that they uh, had an exodus from uh, from Iraq. And so he spent almost a year basically in a relocation camp in Israel. With his siblings or by himself? Nope, by himself. Is this in 48? Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of my dad was formed in the process of leaving Iraq, getting to Israel. And really, you know, his family had been well off in Iraq and they started from nothing at that point. What do you remember about growing up that you think your parents, you know, that they let you do that, you know, others might not let you do? Or is there anything kind of unconventional about the, about the way they raised you? So the most interesting pictures of me growing up are me sitting at a computer when I'm way too young to sit at a computer. And so when I was two, I had a Apple Lisa sitting in our house that I was allowed to play with. And very few people were allowed to play with those, even adults, because they were really expensive. Now, an Apple Lisa is one of the first Apple computers, Lisa being, I think, uh, Steve Jobs' daughter's That's name. right. What might I not know about you? What might you not know about me? I love playing video games. So for somebody who is entrusted by 50 of the Fortune 100 to manage their security, the fact that I buy almost every good video game and finish it is something you probably wouldn't know and they probably wouldn't assume. Now, there's a big change in video games from when you were a kid to now. I mean, oh, yeah. whether it's like Super Mario Brothers or Miss Pac-Man, which is now, which is like a whole other 3D virtual worlds, um, which do you prefer? So I never have nostalgia for the old games. I, and I never play games over more than once. So, I mean, what used to be movies are now video games, you know, and it's interactive and immersive. I mean, human interaction and the way that we're going to entertain ourselves is just completely going to change. And it's beautiful. Great. I I totally disagree with you, but that's fine. <laughs> um, well, just imagine just... that you could go to every museum in the world. Every museum, you could just push a button and you could be in Paris. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Could be worse. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My guest has been Orion Hindawi. If you would like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. From Scratch.